Uh, hey, take your Bible out or your device, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 8. Uh, and man, I'm so excited about today. And I just want to say that we're going to be talking about some concepts today that are so big. They're so enormous. And I feel so inadequate to communicate some of these things. And I just want to ask you just kind of, you know, uh, bear with the, uh, the, the frailty of the messenger as you read this passage, because it is so, so big. It is so big. So excited about this today. So imagine uh, you're standing on a mountain peak, looking out, out across this incredible vista of mountains, a mountain range. And let's call our mountain range the Romans range, okay? And there's one peak that really stands out above all the others. And it's the most grand, it's the most majestic mountain in this beautiful mountain range. The mountain range is, like I said, Romans, specifically Romans chapter 8. But you look on your map, and this mountain has an odd name. Its name is just 28, all right? That's what it is, 28. And Romans 8:28 is like that majestic peak there in the middle of the book of Romans. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what we talked about this last week, God is causing everything in our lives to work together in synergy for our good. Paul is not saying that bad things are good things. What he's saying is that God overrules the bad. He reverse engineers those kinds of things. And then he uses those things for our good. No matter what happens in our lives, God is always using it for our good. For example, in Isaiah chapter 14, God says through his prophet, things will happen as I plan. Things will be as I determine because I, God of heaven and earth, have devised a plan for the whole earth. Now, we are waiting for the ultimate glory. We, we, we sit here and, and we, 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 we walk through this journey we call life. There are times that it's extremely hard, extremely challenging, but we know that we know that we know that there is an ultimate glory waiting for us. When we talk about glory, we mean a home in heaven, not only to be with Christ, but the Bible says that we will be like Christ. When we see him, we will be like him, John says. So everything that happens in our lives is moving you and I toward that goal, goal of glory and that eternal life. And we put this up on the screen last week, this kind of math formula, where God's infinite power plus his infinite wisdom multiplied by his infinite love means that all things are going to work together ultimately for our good. Maybe not in the immediate, but in the ultimate. And so if your heart is set on loving God, you can be guaranteed a thing called future glory. And that's kind of our title today is glory guaranteed. Glory guaranteed. Now, look there at uh, Romans chapter 8. You notice you're given a title. You know, as, as followers of Jesus, we're given a lot of different identities. We're called things like the sons and daughters of God, uh, the followers of the way, the children of God, believers, disciples. But I love this. This is one of my favorite identities that we're given anywhere in the Bible. Look at verse 28. Those who love God. Those who love God. Nothing describes what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God quite like that. Those who love God. Because see, true faith, the kind of faith that saves an immortal soul, it goes beyond just, hey, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me. But there's an emotional, a volitional component to this that says, I love God. I truly do. I have love for him in my heart. <clears throat> and so uh, true salvation is going to produce lovers of God. James chapter 1, the man who patiently endures temptation and trials 
is a happy man. And once his testing is complete, he receives a crown of life. The Lord has promised to all who love him. Peter said another place in the Bible, you have not seen him, but you love him. It's inexplicable. There's this this love for God in your heart when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't know if you've ever asked Christ to be your Savior. I don't know if you ever trusted that what Christ did on the cross for you is enough to save your eternal soul. But if you would just go to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that I need you as my Savior. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need help. Lord, I'm broken before you. There is a change that takes place and one of the changes will be that you'll have a love for God when you ask Jesus to be your Savior. Look at verse 28. If you have love for God, the presence of this love for God in your heart reveals that there is a staggering purpose that God has for your life. You have been called according to his purpose. You know, sometimes life can be this way, can't it? You know, you just think, why did that happen? Where did that come from? And it seems sometimes like life can just be this random, you know, bumble of events just kind of thrown together in a basket. And it just seems so meaningless sometimes. That's why people talk about things like fate and luck because it just seems so random sometimes. But what Paul is saying here, what God's word is saying, is there's a glorious purpose to each and every event in your life. What is that? Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. The Bible says, God is the one through whom and for whom all things exist and all things are for his glory. And he wanted to bring many children to glory. Here's what Paul wants to happen. He wants you and I to read this chapter, specifically right here at the end of this chapter. And he wants to build up in you and me a sense of strength for this life, a sense of assurance that the things that happen in my life I am guaranteed, no matter what happens, that glory awaits me. There is a guarantee of glory. He will bring all these random, seemingly meaningless things that happen to me. He will bring it to a point, to a point of completion. And a day is coming when all of God's holy purpose for me will be fulfilled and nothing can stop it. Hebrews chapter six, he says, God want to make very clear to those who would get what he promised, that his purposes never changed, and he guaranteed it with an oath. And he says a little bit later, God cannot lie. God's enduring purpose is to work all things for our good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in our life is good, as we said a moment ago. But he is going to do us good. He is going to conform you and me to the glorious image of his son. And that is guaranteed. Now look at verse 29, because he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We ought to stop right there. I mean, that is is breathtaking, honestly. When you read that sentence, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Wow. I don't know what that does to your heart when you read that. It makes my heart sore. It really does. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. What you see here are five steps 
that God is taking in your life and mine, if you know Christ is your Savior, that stretch from eternity past, if there is such a thing, to eternity future, if there is such a thing, which there really isn't. We're going to talk about that in a moment, okay? But you, know, you can just think about that for a moment. They sometimes have been called the golden chain of the gospel message. Five links in the chain. It's a chain because once one fact is true of you, then the other four facts must also be true. God foreknew you, God predestined you, God called you, God justified you, God glorified you. And you can't think of God's saving work in your life and mine in terms of a linear progression of time, like chronological time. And so it's very important as you're reading this passage to like try to set aside all of your preconceptions about time. And I know about the, probably like a lot of us, you know, you're like, man, we got to get to church on time. You know, what does that even mean? You know, we don't even really know for certain. And, I, you know, uh, I have a hard time even accepting daylight savings time. Have y'all seen this? I mean, this cartoon is so accurate, isn't it? Like, it's like 6.30, like, it must be midnight. What's going on? And you're just kind of panicking. You're kind of freaking out. And, um, you know, there's a lot of movies and books about time travel, you know, like Avengers Endgame. How many of you guys saw Interstellar, the movie Interstellar? How many? Oh, only a few. Oh, that's too bad. Man, you know, <laughs> it's really, really great. But a lot of people think it's a space movie, but it's really a movie about time. Uh, the director of the movie wanted us to understand that scientists are just beginning to understand just how mysterious time is. And it's a fantastic movie, by the way. You got to watch it. It's really, really good. But it's important not to confine God to our concepts of time. Now, do you remember in school when your, your teachers would give you a list of words on paper and they would say, okay, I want you to define all these words. And I remember I hated that assignment. I really did. I always hated it when the teacher would just give us a list of words and say, okay, now I want you to open up your textbook. Kids, textbooks were these things in arcane times. <laughs> where you had an actual book and you had to carry it around with you. And it was really developed your character. You know, you had to carry like five or six books around, you know, like, remember that? And we had to carry, it really did develop our character. You know, that's, that's one thing that's wrong with the youth of America today because everything, they, everything all the information in the world is in a little, little bitty, uh, you know, computer that weighs one and a half pounds. You know, that's, that's what the, you get them carrying books again. But I digress. Uh, but, uh, and the little Texas Instruments calculator, remember those? Those were so fun. That was the best technology we had with a little red LED. Yeah, yeah. Ask me about that later. Uh, but you had to open up your textbook, and you had to go searching for the definitions of those words. And I used to just hate that. I hated doing definitions. I really did. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to open up our book and do definitions. <laughs> All right, that's what we're going to do. But do you remember you used to get a really boring assignment? What was the first question that you would ask your teacher? You know, are we ever going to use this? You know, and they'd always say, yeah, someday. If you're a, you know, if you're a biologist, you're going to use this. Uh, you are going to use this. You are going to use this. When life is difficult, life is discouraging, there's nothing better for your heart, for your soul, than to know these five definitions and how they apply to your life. Number one is that God foreknew you. God foreknew you. Now, chat GPT. Have you all used this yet? It is fascinating. It really is. And you think about where does that kind of computing power come from? You know, it's artificial intelligence. If you ask ChatGPT a question, they, they're, they're, the ChatGPT is built into the Microsoft data centers. Microsoft has millions 
of square feet of computers all around the world, in America, Asia, uh, Europe, all over. And combined together, there are millions of terabytes of computer memory. And honestly, we don't understand how it works. Even Bill Gates admits he doesn't understand exactly how it works, but we know that it does, and so we're kind of in awe of it, okay? So think about these massive computers that we are seeing today. They are like children's toys compared with the greatness of the mind of God. Before the foundation of the earth, Paul says, God knew you. Psalm 139, David said, your knowledge is overwhelming to me. It is more than I can grasp. Your eyes saw my body as it was formed and all the days planned for me were written in your book before one of them even existed. God alone knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. That's why about one third of your Bible is prophecy. You know, you, you look on cable TV, there's so much talk about Bible prophecy right now. Why? Because of God's foreknowledge. God understands what's going to happen in the future. There's nothing that's going to happen at any time or any place that God does not already know. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching to a crowd that was gathered, and he said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and then you put him to death. Now, most people who talk about God's foreknowledge say, yes, God looked down through the corridor of time, and then he knew who would be saved and who wouldn't. And that's true. There's an element of that in this word, absolutely. But honestly, as powerful as that idea is, it still doesn't match up to the greatness and the glory of God Almighty. And when we talk about things like, yeah, God foreknew who was going to be saved, we're really kind of limiting God when we talk about God's foreknowledge. It's kind of like in Job chapter 42, I have spoken about things I didn't understand, wonders beyond my comprehension. Notice the verse says, look very closely at your Bible. It says, those he foreknew. Not that which he foreknew, but those. It's not a question of what God knew ahead of time. You know, what is he going to believe? What is she going to believe? It is a question of who God knew ahead of time. I know her. I know him. Now, that blows my mind, to be honest with you. Paul does not say that God foreknew something about us, how we would respond to the gospel. Paul is saying that God foreknew us. It's the same language, by the way, you see all through your Old Testament. For example, we're declaring about Israel. God said this, You only have I known and loved of all the families of the earth. Notice how the word known and loved kind of are in the same meaning. To be known by God is to be loved by God. So when you say God foreknew us, you could say God foreloved us. God foreloved you. <laughs> Knowing in the Bible is most often about being in a relationship. In Genesis, it says Adam knew Eve, his wife. John tells us that Jesus said, I know my sheep and they hear my voice. Genesis chapter 18, God appeared to Abraham in human form. 
And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? For I have known him in order that he may command his children to follow me. So verse 29, those God foreknew. The object of the verb there is personal, those. God entered into a love relationship long before you were ever born, before the world even existed. Amazing. And then he goes on to say that God predestined you. Look also at verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, then there's the next link in the chain, he also predestined. Now, the idea of predestination is extremely challenging for me. I'm just being honest with you. I don't understand it all, and I don't try to. I really don't. And uh, does it mean that God over, you know, looked over the whole of human history, and he chose some for heaven? You know, like, yeah, I'm going to pick John, but I'm not going to pick that guy over there. I'm going to pick Susanna, but I'm not going to pick that lady over there. That, that is not really what this means. Because all through Scripture, we're told that people are responsible to God for how they respond to God. People are held accountable for how they respond to the call to come to Christ. For example, in Mark chapter 6, look up on your screen. Jesus sent out his disciples to go out and preach this gospel, the salvation message. And he said, and if any community do not receive and welcome you, they refuse to listen to you. When you depart, shake the dust off your feet. And he said, truly, I tell you, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that God had destroyed, on judgment day than for that town. And so this whole idea of predestination, when you read that, you start thinking, oh man, you mean God has chosen somebody to go to heaven, but that means he chose somebody to go to hell. That's not what he's saying at all. Predestination is what it sounds like. If you know Christ as your savior, you have a destination. You have a destination. Ephesians 1, Paul said this, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why does God do these things? Because it pleases him. It pleases him to know you, to love you, and to destine you for glory. Notice the equivalent ideas here, by the way. He chose us and he predestined us. Those things are like given an equivalency here in that passage of scripture. And that means that God is moving you and me toward one supreme goal. Those who are in a love relationship with God, those whom God foreknew, he destines to a chosen end, the likeness of his son, Jesus. And you see that, again, look at verse 29. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There are some out there who say that, predestination is all about, you know, God assigning some to heaven, some to hell. That's not the point. The point is that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The awesome reality that God is making you increasingly more like Christ. That's why sometimes things come into our lives that to us are just inexplicable. They're painful. They're hard. They give us deep sorrow and grief, confusion, but it's all there. For one thing, because our predestined goal is to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all reflect the Lord's glory, and we are being transformed into the same image. Hmm. So if we understand predestination, it helps explain some of the confusion in our lives. We often think that God's primary purpose in our life ought to be 
our happiness and our comfort and our luxury and our ease and satisfaction. But Paul says, no, if you are on this journey, this destiny with Jesus, then the ultimate goal of your life is transformation. God is going to transform you. And the other thing is that God called you. Look at verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I'd go outside to play, and I'd say, Mom, how long can I be gone? Daddy will call you. <laughs> you know? And then my dad would go out there, and man, he would whistle. He could whistle really, really good. And my dad would whistle, and then we came home. All right, uh, We knew it was time to come home because he called. Michael was telling me about a concept that a fellow songwriter is working on. And it's just awesome. Think about this. The first person in heaven after the cross. There's a new covenant. There's this new arrangement between God and man. You no longer have to prove your faith by keeping the law, but you prove your faith by looking to the cross and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. The very first person to go to heaven based purely on his faith in Jesus, the first person saved by pure grace, who was it? It was the thief. The thief, a criminal condemned to the most grisly, brutal death the Romans could conceive of on the cross next to Jesus. He looked at Jesus and he said, will you remember me? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Imagine this man walking into the pearly gates, so to speak, and he goes into the corridors of heaven and one of the angels sees him and says, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing here? You must be in the wrong place. He says, I don't know why I'm here, but Jesus told me I could come. Oh, isn't that great? It's going to be a great song. You're going to be hearing it on the radio someday. Jesus told me I could come. What caused the thief on the cross to look to Jesus to save his immortal soul? It was the calling of God. Somehow God was speaking into his heart. And one of God's Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, was, was moved by God to write what he could not imagine. God told him that there was going to come a day that God would miraculously bring about a stupendous transformation in the hearts of men and women everywhere. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, I will plant a new heart and a new spirit inside of you. I will take out your stubborn, stony heart and give you a willing, tender heart of flesh. And if you're like me, you might ask, well, how does that happen? You know, how does that miracle take place? How does a human heart transform from one that is hard and stony and is opposed to God to one that's tender and loves God? How does that happen? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul gives us the answer. He says, God once said, let light shine out of darkness. That's the power of creation. And he says to this same God, he made his light shine in our hearts. Every one of us who's in a love relationship with God, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of the way, the children of God, et cetera, et cetera, we are there because it began when God said something to us. Let light shine out of darkness. God spoke a creative word into us and our hearts were transformed. 
just like the thief on the cross. The agency by which God changes our hearts is his spoken word, his voice. It's the, word, it's the power of creation that God and God alone possesses. What God speaks will come to pass. God speaks, light comes out of darkness. God speaks, life comes out of death. In John chapter 11, Jesus called out to his friend in the grave, Lazarus, in a thunderous voice, come out. And the man who was dead walked out of his tomb. Woo, love that so much. This calling, this Paul, like Paul talks about, is God calling out to our dead and stony heart. And everyone is called to come to Christ. But for some, theologians say there is what's called an effectual call. It has an effect on you. It changes your heart. And you hear the voice of God. This is what Jesus said. For example, on trial before Pilate, Jesus said to Pilate, as they were having a conversation, Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you're right, I am a king. For this cause I was born. This is why I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And all who are of the truth, they hear my voice. So when you see the word calling in your Bible somewhere, what does it mean? I hear God's voice. I heard God's voice. God calling is God creating all of our lives. I don't know when you might have come to Christ as your Savior. I don't know if you have yet. But I want you to know that all of your life, in Acts chapter 17, we are told that God appoints us to live in certain times and certain places so that our heart might seek God. And here we are, all of our lives, God is creating a sense of interest. And interest becomes longing. And then longing becomes urgency. <laughs> I have to have something else other than what I have. It might have happened to you as a child. Bless the Lord. It might be like me. It might be like as a teenager. For some of you, it might have been as an adult. But there is an interest that becomes a longing, that becomes an urgency. And then one day, boom, the voice of God thunders in your heart. And you say, yes to Jesus as your Savior, and your heart is transformed. And so Isaiah chapter 43, this is what the Lord says, He who is your creator, do not fear, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. Amen. That's what it means to be called. God's calling is God creating in us a new heart. And then Paul says, God justified you. Those he called, he also justified. Now, we've been talking about this whole idea of justification for some time as we've been studying the book of Romans, so I don't want to go back over that all again. But basically what he's saying is that when you trust Jesus as your Savior because you hear the voice of God in your heart, then all of a sudden you're declared innocent of all charges. And you're worthy of God. You're worthy of God's family, God's presence. The record of your sins is expunged, and you're reconciled to Him. And you're no longer opposed to God, but you're accepted, loved, and wanted and dear to his heart. And justification is made possible because Jesus paid for all of your sins on the cross. Because of the cross, he gives the gift of righteousness to those who love him. And the last thing Paul tells us, the last link in this chain, is that God glorified you. God glorified you. Look at verse 30. Please underline this in red. Put a mark here. Put a star in the, in the margin. 
Those he justified, he also glorified. Now you might look at that and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There must be a typo here. You should say, God will glorify me because as I look at myself in the mirror today, I am not glorified. <laughs> you know, There's nothing about me that's all that glorious. It hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> Why are you speaking of this in the past tense as if it's already taken place? Again, remember the first link in the chain, foreknowledge. We said you got to step outside of your preconceptions about time. On the last link of the chain, you have to step out of your preconceptions about time. We cannot, uh, we cannot bind God into our linear understanding of time. Our laws of physics do not apply to God. Nothing that constrains us constrains him. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? And I heard a guy say that one time, you know, and it's so, so true. God exists outside of all of our boundaries of time and space and matter. In Revelation chapter 22, John said, I saw a great white throne and the one who was sitting on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and disappeared. And I'd say, well, Les, what does that mean? I don't know. I have no idea what that means. Again, I think John is trying to express the inexpressible, the best that he can. But all of our laws of time and space and matter, they just go haywire in the presence of God. And you notice that word glorified is in the past tense. Why? Because it is certain to happen. God has already determined it. There's nothing that can alter your eternal destiny. The final link of the chain. Having done all these other things, being foreknown, foreloved, being called, being justified, being predestined, we can be utterly confident, assured, guaranteed God will finish His glorious work in our lives. It is guaranteed. Isaiah 46, 11, God says, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Paul uses the past tense here because again, he's seeing it from God's perspective. Future events as if they were already done because they are done, because God has purposed it to happen. Daniel chapter 12, what does it mean to be glorified? Daniel says this, there will be a time, he's talking about the end of, the end of history, the end of this era of human history. A lot of people talking about Bible prophecy right now. Is this the end? Could be. We are always told it could be any day. That Jesus will come like a thief in the night. We're always told that. And Daniel was shown a little glimpse of what that future would look like. And he said, there will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nation's beginning up to that time. In other words, it'll be the worst time in world history. But all those whose names are found written in the book will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake and the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse. And those bringing many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. So we hear the word glorified and we think, what exactly does that mean? Well, we have a clue here. You know, there's this luminosity. There's this brilliance. There's this beauty that comes with being glorified. And every time we go to a funeral, we talk about somebody or we hear about somebody 
Now they finally have their glorified body. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. What does it mean exactly? We don't know exactly what it means, but we have some ideas. But here's what I want you to guard against. Don't let anybody ever talk you out of this. Don't let anybody ever mock you for this or make you doubt this or or kind of weave some uncertainty about this whole idea of glorification into your mind because it just should not be because this is the hope and the promise and the guarantee that we cling to. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, there's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to, quote, spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they shouldn't talk about them. <laughs> I love that. All the scriptural imagery like harps and crowns and gold, etc., is of course a merely symbolical attempt to express symbolical, excuse me, symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. You know? And so, yeah, we read our Bible and we say, I don't understand, you know, the streets of gold, pearly gates. We don't know how literal do we take all that. But all we know for certain is it will be so glorious, so beautiful, so other than everything we experience now in this world filled with sin, wrecked by rebellion. So I want to end on this today. His wisdom is profound. His power, vast. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear, Ursa Major, and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Amen. Let's bow our heads today for just a minute if we could. I just want to ask you to reflect on these truths today. I hope this list of definitions hasn't been too boring of an assignment for you today. Because it is so, so powerful in our lives. That those whom God knew ahead of time, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God knew you and loved you before you were ever born. He's predestined you to be like Jesus. He called out to you. His voice thundered in your heart and your dead and stony heart was awakened to life. And then he justified you, declared you innocent of all charges. And now he has glorified you. He set you on a path to be in the glory of heaven and to be something of the glory of heaven. See, the glory of heaven is not just all the things that God has prepared for us, you know, the mansions of glory and things like that, it is us as well. Part of the glory of heaven is you, it's me. That what we will be like, what we will appear like, what we will sound like, all the things that we will be, that's all part of the glory of heaven. And this is the hope that we cling to. I know that right now there are so many people in this room that are going through some incredibly hard times. We just go before the Lord today and just thank Him that you are glorified, that your destination is known, and that your Father in Heaven, He will get you there. 
Go before him today and thank him for that. Give him praise for that today. And ask him to give you the strength and the stamina today. Just go through the days yet to come. The days yet to come with courage, with faith, with perseverance. Ask God to do that in your heart today. And I'll just be quiet for a few moments and I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, you know that there are many people around us. Lord, I know there are people here in this room today who are so utterly confused and some are despondent and discouraged. And there are some here today, Father, that I'm sure are just very, very broken. And I just pray, Father, that you would just lift their head today, that they would know the depths of your love that they've never known them before, the depths of your purpose as they've never seen them before. And Father, just know the glory of their future as they've never even thought it before. I just ask that for them today, Jesus. And Lord, there are other people who are not in this room that we all know and love very much. We ask this for them as well today, Jesus. They just might know it. Lord, they might be able to see it in a way they never have before. I pray that for all of us here, Father. Just, Lord, would you just remove the scales from our eyes that we might see your glory, Jesus. Be drawn into it. Not just drawn to it, but into it, Lord. We just love you so much. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us on the cross. It's for your sake we pray.